the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, after which, uh, starting in May, the plan will be to start Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So the seven sayings from the cross look like this. Last week we did the first one where Jesus said from the cross, the first thing he said that is recorded, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second saying, which we'll do today, is today you will be with me in paradise. The third saying, woman, behold your son, and then turning to John, behold your mother. After that, there are three hours of darkness where Jesus is silent, where nothing is recorded that Jesus said. Uh, That is really the mystery. When we just sang a song about, come behold the wondrous mystery, I think the mystery of the atonement, the mystery of Christ taking away sin, occurred during those three hours of darkness. It didn't happen after he died. It was finished by that time. That's what Jesus said, number six. But in those three hours of darkness, shrouded in darkness, the mystery of the atonement, I think, was accomplished. Followed by... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. And then lastly, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The first two sayings and the very last one are recorded in Luke's gospel. Luke is the only one that records those three sayings. Then John's gospel records number three, and he records number five and six. Uh, He's the only gospel writer to do that. And then Matthew and Mark, the only saying they record is number four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're going to work through these seven sayings in six weeks. I'm not exactly sure how they'll be divided up yet. I suspect I will combine five and six since we'll be in John's gospel. We'll try to combine those together, but I'm not entirely sure I live week by week. So those are our sayings. Some people divide these up as number one is a word of forgiveness. The second saying, the one we're doing today, is a word of salvation. Then there's a word of affection to his mother or a word of provision. There's a word of desertion or a word of anguish when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst is a word of suffering. It is finished, a word of victory, and then finally, a word of trust. That's one way to divide up the seven sayings. But let's look at Luke chapter 23, and I'm going to pick up reading in verse 32. Luke's gospel records it this way. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, or Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's the passage we're going to do deal with this morning. Jesus' second saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So before we actually look at the saying, I want to kind of survey the picture, the, the scene that I just read, uh, the larger narrative, and I want you to be thinking... What is it that Luke is emphasizing? What is it that he's drawing your attention to? Uh, what is this particular saying? Uh, what is its backdrop? He says this in light of what is happening in this set situation. And I think there's two things that stand out as very notable. Number one, there's unified hostility and revulsion of Jesus. In the verses that I just read, you had rulers scoffing. You had soldiers mocking and you had one of the criminals who was railing. So Luke, Luke's drawing this picture, and he's got these components, and there's this unified hostility against Jesus. And I think it plays off one another, because it's similar to... I mean, people are people, and in bullying situations, if somebody's low man on the totem pole, everybody tends to pack onto that individual. I mean, I've got horrific stories from my childhood, you know, being at the bus stop and, and being in school. And I went to a... I went to a private school for, well, I started off at public, and then, I don't know, from about fifth grade to eighth grade, I was in private school, and it was, they were horrible stories about who was the lowest person in junior high, and that's probably true everywhere, and no matter where you fit on the pole, as long as you're not at the very bottom, you know, the person on the very bottom, it, it's unconscionable <laughs> the way people like that are treated. But that's human nature. So, so you've got these rulers that are exhibiting hostility against Christ. And, and maybe that kind of draws the soldiers in to also participate, even one of the thieves at this point. But, it, but it's actually worse than what Luke's gospel tells us. Because it's not really just one of the thieves, it's actually both thieves. So turning your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, let's get Matthew's take on the same scene. If you've got a pew Bible, you'll find that on 834. Matthew's gospel doesn't give us the scenario that Luke does, but he does describe the same scene. Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to pick up at verse 39, because both gospel writers, both Matthew and Luke, want you to see a unified hostility and revulsion of who Jesus is as he's on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him. Now we have just people passing by on the road, deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, which is highly unusual that a gospel writer includes all three categories of notable leaders among the Jews. So there's a unified hostility among chief priests, scribes, and elders. Mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And then some Bibles have the word if, which I think is a good word, a good transition. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. 
if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Both robbers. Not just the one. Not one reviling. But in verse 44 of Matthew's gospel, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. They both revile this one who is on the cross. Matthew wants you to know that. Passerbys. People that may not know much. People that are close to the situation. Everyone is reviling Christ on the cross in both Matthew and in Luke. The second theme is that the common refrain against Jesus is to save himself. So that in Luke's gospel, you have rulers saying, let him save himself. It's a great opportunity for Christ to show what he's really made of, if he really is who he says he is, if he's the chosen If he's the Messiah. They're actually getting that from Isaiah chapter 42, if you remember when we were in Isaiah last year. In Isaiah chapter 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. They're alluding to Isaiah. If he's the chosen one, if he's the Lord's Messiah, the one in whom the Lord delights, let him save himself. The soldiers also say, save yourself if you are the king of the Jews. And then the criminal in Luke's gospel says, save yourself and us. Because both criminals were involved in reviling Christ. Both were scoffing at him and making fun of him on the cross. So a common theme is united against Christ and then this push to do something about it. Save yourself. If you're really who you think you are or who people say that you are or who uh, what you've given evidence in some fashion for other people to arrive at a certain conclusion, the obvious thing to do now is to save yourself. And we'll all believe. And we'll all be in a better place. And Christ gives no answer. I want you to consider Luke's twos, which is kind of interesting. Luke's gospel, every gospel writer uh, is unique in what they present and how they present it. The first three gospels are called synoptics. They tend to see things the same way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of similarity, but for all the similarity, there are distinct differences. John's gospel came last, uh, and it was much later than the first three Gospels, and so I think he filled in uh, and provided some information that needed to be told, and there are lots of reasons why and how that develops, but I'm not in John's Gospel, I'm in Luke. Luke's unique, even though he's similar to Matthew and Mark. Luke loves giving us pairs of things. And these pairs are given sometimes as a, as a parallel to see two tracks running along the same way. Sometimes they're given to contrast two different situations. But Luke loves to tell stories in twos. I'll give you some examples. And these are all unique to Luke. They're not found in any other gospel, each one of these stories. It starts off, Luke's gospel opens with two women's birth announcements. The first birth announcement is given to a lady who had been barren her entire life, didn't expect to have a child. Her name is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Zechariah would have a child who would be the forerunner to Messiah. His name is John the Baptist. Followed up by a second birth narrative where a virgin named Mary would bear forth the Christ child, the actual Messiah. 
Two birth narratives is how Luke opens his gospel. It moves from two birth narratives to, 40 days later, two very old persons giving thanks for the child that Mary and Joseph bring to the temple. As Mary offers uh, an offering or a sacrifice of purification, an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna, both giving thanks because they are seeing God's promises being fulfilled. They see something of the redemption of Israel in what is, at this point, just a little tiny infant, a pair of two. Luke's gospel is the only one that tells us of two people that that receive Jesus in a different way in Luke's gospel, chapter 7. Jesus goes to the home of a Pharisee for dinner. And he's not there very long before a woman comes in and lets down her hair and anoints his feet and is crying over his feet and is showing forth such gratitude. And the Pharisee is really quite uh, offended by this. He's been standoffish in the whole thing. And, and he, he kind of, he finds the situation uncomfortable, more than uncomfortable, off-putting, probably more than that. He's offended. And so Jesus tells a story. And Jesus tells this Pharisee, when I came in, you didn't wash my feet. You you hardly cared that I was here. You didn't show great gratitude. But this woman has shown me all. She's lavished her love on me because she's been forgiven much. And he recognizes that. But that's a contrast in that particular story. But two persons only told by Luke. Luke's Gospels tells us in chapter 10 of two sisters who welcome Jesus into their home. Their names are Mary and Martha. And Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus to listen and to learn. And Martha's distracted. My Bible says, uses the word distracted. She's distracted with so much to do. So much to do. Seems to be another contrast. Similar. I mean, they're sisters. They share the same home. But Luke's gospel gives us that glimpse. There's, there's other twos in Luke. Luke's gospel tells us about a father who has two sons. One son is called the prodigal son, and he goes away and squanders his share of the inheritance, and he comes back humbled. The other son is a a self-righteous son, who also is not in good relationship with his father. Seems to be another contrast, though they're, again, now instead of two sisters, now you've got two sons, two brothers, in relationship with one another, and the father on some level, but not the right kind of a relationship. Luke tells us that parable only in Luke. Luke tells us in chapter 16 about two men who died, one very wealthy and one very poor. The very poor man was a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Lazarus was in a good place. And the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment and said, send someone to tell my brothers and warn them against this place. And the word was given back. They have Moses and the prophets. And he's like, no, no. If someone were to come back from the dead, they would believe. And the answer is, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen The one would rise from the grave. Which is true. Because those that are left in their sin didn't believe when Jesus rose from the grave either. Luke's Gospel is the only Gospel that tells us about those two men. Luke's Gospel also tells us another parable about two men that went to the temple to pray. One prayed thus with himself. Father. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. And the other man beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two men went to the same temple to pray. And now, in Luke chapter 23, we have criminals who are crucified. 
Is it a story of paralleling the two individuals? Is it, is it highlighting their similarities? Or is it, a, is it a story, is it a narrative, is it a part of Luke's narrative where he's contrasting the two criminals on the cross? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Because if we start off, the two criminals are very much alike in their lawlessness, in their depravity of heart, in their expression of sin. Both individuals have lived a, a similar lifestyle that has resulted into their situation now where they are nailed to crosses and they will die unless uh, their sides are pierced. They will die over the course of two or three days. A very slow and a very painful death. So there's, very, there's similarity in that they both are lawless. The, the depravity, the sin that is in their heart has expressed itself in similar ways. In their reviling of Christ on the cross, they're similar. Both scoffed at Christ. Both reviled Christ. In Matthew's gospel, they joined with the soldiers and they joined with the passerbys and they joined with the the rulers and the elders and the chief priests and scoffing at Christ and, and laughing at him. And if you're really who you say you are, why don't you save yourself? They're exactly alike in that way as well. They're alike in their guilt and their sentence of condemnation. They both are not, neither one is going to get out of this alive. They both will die on crosses like thousands did in a Roman Empire. And they're alike in their current proximity and exposure to Jesus. They both hear the same things. They both see the same things. The words that Jesus has spoken, they both hear those words. At this point, the only thing that we know that they've heard is Jesus saying among those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, let it go, they don't know what they're doing. They've heard Jesus, both, have heard, both those criminals heard Jesus say those, those words. They're alike in so many ways. Luke wants, the gospel writers, not so much Luke, the gospel writers want us to know that they are very much alike, which... These two criminals are a snapshot for all of humanity. They're a portrayal of everybody. They, rep- they represent all of us, which may seem like too much to you or maybe to me that, that that doesn't seem entirely fair because if I look back over my life, I would think if I lived in a Roman world, I don't know that I've ever done anything that would qualify me to be crucified on a cross justly like these two criminals are hung on crosses justly for the crimes they've committed against Rome or against other people. I don't think I've lived that kind of a life. But am I really not one of those two criminals or like those two criminals in that I revile Christ, in that I sin? Am I really any better because I'm the older son in the prodigal son story out of relationship with the father? And in my self-righteousness, I think I've earned what's and I've got certain things coming to me? Am I really any better because I'm the the man that goes to the temple to pray and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I haven't stumbled in some of the immorality that I read about on the news or in whatever literature I may read. Am I really any better than them? Or do I really fit into these same categories? My depravity of heart expresses itself differently from other people's. And your depravity of heart expresses itself differently than mine. 
but it will find expression. It will evidence itself. We all revile Christ by our sin and our disobedience and our selfishness. And we all revile Christ by our self-righteous good deeds. When I say, you know, I'm, I'm thankful Christ came for, for people that really need a lot of forgiveness. And I'm thankful to God that's not me. In my self-righteousness, I'm just like those two criminals on, the, on crosses. That somehow I think I've earned what's coming to me. We all revile Christ when we expect and demand of God slash Christ to save us on our terms and by our standards. Christ isn't uh, something that is added into life that gains me what I think I want. Christ becomes Lord and Master over all of my life. He's not something added on by me. He's somebody who takes over my life, who now uh, guides my life, who commands my life. Philip Riken, I think is these days, I think he's the president of Wheaton College. He used to be pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church. He did a commentary on Luke's gospel, part of the Reformed exposition, expositional commentary. Philip Riken said this regarding the second remark. When we do not get what we want out of life, often our first instinct is to get angry with God and start telling him what he has to do to earn back our allegiance. What this man on the cross wanted Jesus to do was to get him down from the cross. Save yourself and us. I've seen this play out in my own life. I've seen it play out in other people's lives as well. That we give God a second chance to get it right. Because he's not giving us what we want. What we think is good for us. What we think we need. And when he doesn't, we're offended. We're offended. All right, God, I'm going to give you another chance to come through this time. And if you come through this time, then I'll believe. That's essentially what the thief on the cross in Luke's gospel starts off saying, the one thief. Save yourself and us. I'm going to give you a last chance. We're both out of here pretty shortly. Unless you save yourself and us. Only Luke goes on to differentiate between the two criminals. We find out they're very much alike but they don't stay very much alike. They take two different paths at some point. So it starts off like this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He assumes the other criminal, the other thief, is in with him because they both scoffed at Christ. They both reviled Christ. He has every reason to believe that, that the other thief on the other side of him believes exactly like he does. But all of a sudden, something has changed. So that the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How do you explain the change? The dramatic change. How do you explain a man who moments earlier was reviling this, this person, Jesus, on a cross like everyone else was reviling him? All of a sudden, he expresses repentance. And he confesses a, a faith on the cross in these last few moments. How do you explain that? What just happened? Where did that come from? You will explain it somehow. 
You've got to explain it somehow. I have to attribute it to the sovereign grace of God that freely works in that individual's life in such a dramatic way it overcomes his sin and his unbelief in that particular man's life. It's not, it's not all of a sudden he put together pieces and, and had this terrific insight on his own. I think it's an act of God. I call it a miracle. I think the Bible calls it regeneration. A sinner who was dead spiritually is about to be dead physically. And God works such a miraculous change in his life, he has a complete about face in these last few moments on the cross. Faith in spite of every contrary circumstance, which is an amazing thing if you think about it. There's nothing in Jesus to attract this criminal to him as being one who can save him in any sense. For all the world, he looks. Jesus looks completely inadequate to save anybody. He's completely weak. No blind person is seen. No deaf person is hearing. No lame people are walking. Jesus seems powerless, completely unable to do anything for anybody. And all of a sudden, this criminal on a cross has a complete about face. What does he believe now that he hadn't seen before? Here's what he believes now. Number one, he believes that there is a God to be feared. Do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation. He believes something about eternal righteousness and justice and holiness. And there is a God, there is a creator by whom we will be held account. Secondly, this thief believes in personal sin and guilt. He says, we indeed justly, we're we're being crucified, we deserve it. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's owning his sin. He's not looking for another attorney. He's not looking for another appeal. He's not saying, but you don't understand what other people did. I would have never done that if these other people hadn't done these. He owns his sin on the cross. Thirdly, this criminal believes in Jesus' righteousness. This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. I I can't say that he's in a position to to pass judgment or to assess all of Jesus' life. I don't think he's known Jesus other than these few hours they've been on the cross together. But in this moment, at this particular time, under these circumstances, he looks at Jesus and he says, he looks at himself and he says, I deserve to be here. That man doesn't. It's at least like Pilate who says, I've examined him. I find no fault in him. I don't know that Pilate is saying that Jesus has lived a sinlessly perfect life, though he has... But Pilate isn't assessing all of that. Pilate is just assessing in the moment and saying, I I find no fault. This criminal on the cross says, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He then expresses faith or belief in Jesus' kingdom. He talks about when you come into your kingdom. I don't know that he has a good understanding It's probably a very elementary understanding. It's probably somewhat of a misinformed understanding. But he believes something about Jesus as a kingdom. In spite of the fact of his situation now on the cross, all three of them. And then he says, he cries out for mercy and he says, Jesus, remember me. You have a kingdom, remember me. All of that 
in these last few moments. And so the question, how did he come to know and believe these things? Where did this come from? This, this admission of personal sin and guilt. This expression of Christ is righteous. He doesn't deserve to be here. He's got a kingdom. And remember me because you can do something about it. Where did all that come from? How did all that transpire? Other than God working in his heart and in his life. And the gospel has been preached all around both of those criminals however many hours they've been on the cross up to this point. There's a sign hanging over Jesus that says, King of the Jews, and he is King of the Jews. People are saying, he he saved others, and he did save others. In many physical ways, he saved others. Now he's saving saving on the cross from sin. Uh, the, The rulers called him, If you're the chosen one, if you're the Messiah, he is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. So in some sense, the truth about Christ has been circulating all around the cross for however many hours. He's king of the Jews. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He has saved others. And by the grace of God, this man takes it into his heart and he believes it. He believes even now that Christ can save him. Christ can remember him. He says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. That's kind of an interesting phrase. If you go back to the Old Testament. If you go back to before Abraham. If you go back to Noah. The Lord destroying civilization with a flood. And starting over with Noah and his family. It says. And the Lord remembered Noah. I think it was 150 days. The flood waters had prevailed. And the Lord remembered Noah. The Lord remembered Israel, who had been in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. But the Lord remembered. The Lord remembered the Israelites. He heard the cries and the sufferings of his people. And he sent Moses to be their deliverer. All through the Old Testament you read, and the Lord remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham. The Lord remembers. And so the Lord will act a certain way because he remembers his own promises. He remembers what he's promised to do. The thief says, remember me. And the greatest surprise of all is Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not after hundreds of years. Not after one day there will be this resurrection from the dead and a resurrection to life. Not after 150 days like for Noah. But Jesus says today. It's also interesting because up to this point, Jesus, so far as we know, so far as the gospel writers record, Jesus has not responded to any of the scoffing, any of the reviling, any of the taunts. Jesus hasn't reacted to any of that. And all of a sudden, on this particular occasion, when this sinner reaches out and says, remember me, Jesus responds, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, I say to you. That's, that's similar to in Isaiah. One of the words we loved, I loved to highlight was the word behold. I think if we were in the Old Testament, we were using more of the Old Testament language, it'd be the word behold. Jesus said to him, behold. You're not going to believe this. Behold, today, you'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise is, is not even a Hebrew word. It's not a Jewish word. It's actually a Persian word. It's actually a word imported from another culture and another language. It's in our Bibles. It's in the Hebrews Bible. 
The word paradise, it has to do with a, a, a kingly garden. It, it uh, conjures back images of the Garden of Eden, rightly so. It's used in Revelation as well. But it's this beautiful place that the Persians used, and it was called uh, paradise. But the interesting thing here is that the real emphasis should be on the with me. Because I'm not sure it's really paradise if Christ isn't there. I think sometimes we think uh, in terms of the afterlife, the real beauty of the afterlife is you are in a place of peace or rest or joy or happiness or you're going to be doing what you enjoy doing. Whatever that hobby is, whatever that interest is, I'm not sure it's paradise if Christ isn't there. I'm not sure that's a place to go if Christ isn't there. The emphasis isn't on the place, paradise, the name. The emphasis is on the person who is there. You'll be with me in paradise. That's what makes it paradise, to be with Christ. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, said, One thief was saved that no sinner might despair but only one that no sinner might presume. The prayer is so simple. You know, what does it take to be a Christian? What does it take to be a believer? What does it take to receive the forgiveness of sins? It takes an awareness that I'm guilty, but Christ is righteous. It takes an awareness that he has a kingdom. And it's a prayer, God, remember me. Christ, remember me. Take my sin away. It's as simple as that. Charles Spurgeon, he said... Nobody should count on repenting on their deathbed. You're not promised a bed when you die. Uh, Lots of people die without beds. The time to repent, the time to believe is now. Today is the day of salvation. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. What are your comments and questions? Anything from the text you want to draw attention to or that I missed? Yes. To some extent, I'm sure there are lots of events that took place. Personally, I doubt Christ said other than those seven sayings. And that partly is based on on what the Bible says, uh, he opened not his mouth. So I know he's not answering charges, he's not disputing, he's not engaging in conversation. It's possible, though. I mean, it is possible he did say some other things that that God saw fit not to record for us. But my own suspicion is that probably not. Certainly, from what you just read from John's Gospel, we know we could tell how many thousands of stories of interactions Jesus had with people. Miracles teachings, opportunities, you know, the world itself couldn't contain all of those incidents. I know that's true. But on the cross, I think Jesus was mostly silent simply because I think Scripture emphasizes he went as a lamb before its shears and he opened not his mouth. So that's my own take on it. Good thought. Someone else? Someone else?